Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Today, Trey and I have one of my favorite people on, Carol Reynolds, Professor Carol. And uh, I came across Carol the first time at a Searcy conference in Dallas over 10 years ago. I think it was the What is Man conference. Um, and then I just loved her energy and what she said. And I grew up in a musical home. My mother was a music teacher. And so my heart was just drawn immediately to Carol. And then um, I guess I've been like a, a fan. So I followed her around and bought some of her curriculum for my kids. And we did some of some of uh, the appreciate music appreciation in high school. And then um, years later, uh, Carol did a little a little session on the arts and in a little church in Plano, Texas, I think. And that's where I met Dr. Post, Matt Post. And uh, she had a Russian artist in. We talked about poetry and that was really fun. Getting, I've just been getting to know Carol a little bit more, and then we've been phone calling and emailing, and I just love her. All of the materials on Circle of Scholars is amazing, such an amazing resource, and um, so we're excited to have Carol here. I know uh, she was a professor at SMU. I'll kind of let her get into her background and her expertise and her love of music, which is just contagious. And um, I know that she would prefer that everything we talk about today, we would sing it. <laughs> so I'm sure some things will come out with in song today. Um, but one of the things, Carol, I wanted to, to say to you that, I, that has stuck with me for so long is a blog post I read years ago, because you send your little weekly digest emails. Years ago, you read, you sent one on noise pollution. It has never left me. And I really want to talk about that today, but it will probably need to wait for another podcast. I also really wanted to talk about the importance of atmosphere in the home and school and how auditory and visual senses influence our learning and shape our affections. Really shaping our affections is so important in a classical education. Um, and I know you have a lot of wisdom and insight to bring into that, but today, because we're launching this podcast new, we really want to focus on helping educators with practical information on teaching music as an art and as an appreciation course. So Trey, I know that you would like to start off with a beautiful quote. So why don't you go ahead? I would. And thank you, uh, Dr. Carol, for being here with us. And I was before we started recording, we were both trying to figure out if, if we uh, knew each other or if we had met before. and. Um, as I recall, any time I've ever asked a thoughtful person or someone who I know, um, you know, I can trust their judgment in terms of uh, providing resources in classical education, anytime I've asked the question, hey, uh, what should we be thinking about um, for music education, uh, your name almost always comes up. Uh, so your work at Professor Carroll uh, is, is well known and well respected, and so we're honored to have you here. As I was thinking about um, 
music. I, I went through sort of a, a collection of, of quotes I have in, in a commonplace book, and I came across this quote by Father Bethel, and I believe it appears in a writing he did on the work of John Sr., a, somewhat of a pedagogical uh, uh, biography of John Sr. And here's what Father Bethel has to say. I'll read the quote, and then uh, perhaps we can use this as a launching point for our conversation. Father Bethel says, teachers today have to enrich their students' memories and stimulate their delight in reality and their wonder at its mysteries through gymnastics and music before they can undertake more elevated studies like the liberal arts and philosophy. Learning is gradual and first things must come first. I wonder uh, what comes to mind when you hear Father Bethel's words, and uh, would you describe uh, music as one of those first things that must come first? I just had this image, and first of all, I want to thank you both for having me, and it's just a joy to spend time with you and your audience. can't think of a nicer thing to do right now. Um, I have this image when you were reading that is what if every let's call them teacher college, every teacher's training facility in the world, every institution involved had this passed out as on the top of the packet, you know, before you even fill out the paperwork. Um, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? That, that would be a stunning thing because, uh, first of all, this goes contrary to almost everything that's developed in the last decade, century of what is, um, you know, important, what is first, what must be done, things that we're all fighting against right now, which are so critical in terms of even political aspects of education, which gets really, really messy. We're not going there. But what if you got it down to those two things and and you can? And quite frankly, the the um, if you look at a little child, I mean, I was actually looking, we were out looking out the window today at our neighbor, lovely, lovely neighbors and their grandchild who's now maybe I was four or five months is visiting like for the second time now, you know, you know how exciting that is. This little cute redhead thing is coming in with 700 gallons worth of stuff that they're dragging behind her, right? And I'm just thinking, you know, here's this child who is ready to do a lot of things. This child is ready to sing and to dance and to grab beautiful things, because that is what every child is able to do from a very young age. They're probably singing all kinds of things inside before they can even express it, you know? And little children, the first things they do really are move and dance and move and wiggle and move and run before their feet go anywhere. And they sing from the first sounds they make. Let's face it, they're a little crazy at first, right? Mm -hmm. And what do they do when they figure out how to hold things? And even when they have it, they grasp at beautiful things. So those are um, absolutely natural. They're given us by our creator, period. I mean, that's it. It's put in right there with the eggs and the, and the, the flour and the yeast or whatever is in that recipe, who we are, how we're created. We are able to move. We sing automatically. And if we're physically capable and healthy enough to do these things, and we grasp at things that are beautiful. and. Everything stems from that. Yeah, really, everything. I mean, you take someone who's 17 and fascinated by chemistry or fascinated by uh, archaeology or engineering or um, moving into the woods and building a cabin and starting a homestead. It all comes from 
kind of moving and and expressing and grasping at that which is beautiful and inspiring. Mm -hmm. I love that. How how do we help on a practical level? So many schools they're starting, and and I I think that on from what I hear. I'm just, I'm really wrestling with what you're saying because it's so good, but I feel like beauty is such a a missing element in so many schools. And how, how do you, there's, there's this drive for um, skills and, you know, grades and achievements and checklists, you know, starting in pre-K even. Right. And, and, and like, how, how do you, how do you really get teachers and parents to, embrace the idea that it's okay for kids in school to have a musical education because a musical education is very different and, and you go back to plato what a musical education is it's not just about you know what what we know of as music today right right yeah that's that's right and, and perhaps before we we get to how we can fix it maybe maybe we should um really thoroughly try to describe um you know what what the problem is here um what is um maybe before we get to the idea of what a what a musical education is and how gymnastics and music work together as as first things um what does it look like when those things are not in place mm. um i think we know because we experience it but maybe we just need to hear it articulated well i mean you've just said it i think we're seeing it across our culture mm -hmm. absolutely especially in the united states you know, the more developed the country right now, the uglier things seems to be seem to be. Mm -hmm. And you cannot I mean, one of the things and I don't usually think in these terms, but we have an unfortunate thing where we've decided that knowing, quote unquote, the arts means that you are elite. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the things that developed in, in recent decades, maybe half century. And, and then there's reasons for that. Maybe if you want to look back a century, yes, there's a certain amount. I mean, it, it, if you, it's pretty hard to worry about some of those things if you're living in a subsistence level where, you know, getting the next meal and yet cultures that struggle physically to survive have created some of the most marvelous artistic expressions at levels that, you know, are not going to hit it in some kind of um, academic textbook, but they're actually very, very real. Our desire to have beauty balance that which is difficult and ugly is again it's absolutely inborn um and it's what gets you through and it's I mean, i'm just working right now preparing our it'll be uh, it's coming up uh, uh, a webinar on the spirituals part of our hymn workshops and i've been loading up on the last 10 or 20 years worth of scholarship which is very different on the spiritual and the african-american church and all this that's not the books I was reading 30 and 40 years ago, you see. And it's just been fascinating to catch up in a way. Uh, and I'm very much in the process still of doing that. But one of the things that continues to come through is that the spiritual, which was what it was the prime expression of religion. What is it about? It's about sorrow and suffering and triumph. You know, it's about the one of the things that helped an entire layer of you know, decades of a horrifically oppressed people to survive. So again, the idea that the arts and the music and dance, all this is elite, is is sort of backwards. And so that's one of the things we're working against, um, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So so this idea that um, somehow uh, 
expression through through dance and through song um, is is really just for um, the experts or the professionals or the, or the people that have the means to sort of pursue some sort of rigorous training uh, in those in those uh, in those practices. Um, I think you're quite right to say that you know music and dance are are part of our fundamental makeup as humans. And if that's true, which I believe it is, um, why do we have schools? And I'll go so far to say, why do we have churches that are so deprived of um, the beauty that we know is there, that we know exists uh, mm -hmm. in music and in um, in posture and and what we do with our what we do with our body? Why why have we decided that um, that those things uh, need to be relegated to a Christmas program or something that uh, is a special event and not a part of the day in and day out experience and life of a school. Oh, isn't that funny? You've, you've just, he's putting too many things in this question. What are we going to do with him? <laughs> right. He does. <laughs> you know, again, I'm, I, I, I have these things I was going to say, and then you're saying the things you're saying. A, a composer that I like very much who does a great deal with film scores, TV scores, and um, wind band arrangements, especially orchestral arrangements as well, named um, Julie Giroux, uh, has a, a, a kind of a hobby of recomposing Christmas music, like Little Drummer Boy, based on Bolero, for example. And it's actually marvelous. She does CDs, and it's absolutely wonderful. And it goes way back to when she first started working in Hollywood and all this. It was her thing, you know. But anyway, she I was interviewing her for things that we do uh, not long ago, and she was pointing out to me something that's so obvious but it didn't hit me. And that is, look what happens right around November, December. Suddenly everybody starts, as you just said, listening to more and much better music. Mm -hmm. People who never listened to anything, suddenly are going off to a Messiah singer. They're doing, you know, they're going to these beautiful Christmas Eve and they're thirsty for it. It's like they've had a year without it and they can't get enough of it. And she pointed out that it's the one, and I think this is largely true, the one body of folk music we still have in common. Mm. You know, I mean, it may be Frosty the Snowman versus the Messiah, but still, we we sort of at that point in the year open up uh, in the darkness of winter, so to speak, our, uh, you know, it's okay to just bathe in gorgeous music and not just that beautiful lights and beautiful flavoring and beautiful things. And it's very funny because we have, as, you know, it is okay then and it's January and put it all out and back we go. I mean, that's a small, that's not really what's determining it in the school classroom, but as a culture, I do think that's quite an interesting thing that we do every year. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I, you know, and one thing that, um, yeah, I think that's been very detrimental to us that we've lost we've lost the culture of, of like American folk music, you know, like you said, that this is like the folk music we get is at Christmas time, right? So uh, take us down like folk music to me. Cause I, I raised my kids on Ambleside online, you know, Charlotte Mason was big on folk music and hymns. And, and I mean, I think that's a huge part of a musical education for children, a great place to start when they're in diapers still. Right. And so t tell us a little bit about your work with uh, folk music and development, because I know you've done a lot of developing, you know, curriculum and guides and programs on your website for parents with children to, to study those things. And, and how 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 do you incorporate that in like a classical way? 
Okay, there's another simple question. Mm -hmm. Okay, I will tell you, that's simpler for me. And I will go back to the other two because we really want to look at the practical things that some suggested. We have time for that, though, yeah. I think. Yeah. But I'm very lucky because I was born in Roanoke, Virginia. My daddy was the West Virginia hillbilly, and my mother was a first-generation American, New York Jewish, very much impoverished girl from either the Bronx or Brooklyn. I'm not really sure. And she never liked to talk about She had a tough childhood. So did he, quite frankly. And they met during the Depression. Trust me, that's two cultures that don't always come together, but boy, they did. And uh, she ended up coming down to Virginia, which was a big shock to her, and living in Southwest Virginia, which was another big shock to her. And out came our family. What, what can I say? So I grew up with my daddy playing hillbilly music on the back porch and out and sitting on the picnic table. Mostly we sat on the picnic table. You know, you didn't want to sit on the porch. That wasn't quite what you did on the, <laughs> the picnic table. And I, like, I can imagine that picnic table now. And the neighbors would come over and it was very normal to have someone out there play. He played guitar and someone played banjo and somebody would play mandolin. And they sang Jimmy Rogers and they sang Ernst Tubbs and they sang all these hillbilly things. He, they, he, he That was his music of his youth, okay? That was the pop music of his youth too. Meanwhile, my mother would be calling me in on Saturday afternoons to iron or watch her or help her fold and listen to the Met radio, Texaco radio broadcast that went on for decades, one of the longest running things in our country's history, where this radio broadcast went across the country and united all these opera lovers at a time when many, 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 many people were opera lovers. It was like those people who love musicals today are opera lovers. They don't necessarily call themselves opera lovers, but it's it's the same thing. It's the same impulse. So I had Verdi and Puccini and, and all of this going on in the radio with my mother singing along to everything, even because she used to stand at the Met for pennies. You know, only she could, and you could do that back then in the 1920s, 1930s, right? And she, you could get to the, into the Metropolitan Museum of Art free. And she is as as disadvantaged as she was, and as difficult as it must have been to even get there. She did that regularly growing up. That's one of the few things I knew about her childhood, because that was the salvation, you know, the hope, mm -hmm. if you will. And then out in the picnic table, we had, you know, you don't even want to know some of those old tunes, which if I look back at the lyrics, I could see why she was upset at some of them, you know, and I between <laughs> them a lot of conflict, but for me, it was all music. So my very first recital, I played this little sonatina and then my daddy came up and brought the guitar and we played, won't you come home, Bill Bailey in an improvised form. And to me, it was all music. And then, you know, I had a little bit of a period where I kind of walked away from that younger, much, much younger. But of course, then I began to waken up to the fact that our folk traditions and our classical traditions, I mean, first of all, classical music was popular music. People forget that. They don't know that. And they and, and classical musicians pull from popular music and bing, 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 on it goes. There wasn't a separation. And I'm very, very grateful that in my life there was not that separation coming up. And I urge parents and teachers also trying to try not to make a separation from those traditions. Yeah. Yeah, what you're saying there, getting back to the family, has come back, has come up on on so many conversations we've had um, about the importance of certain things going on in the home, certain things being passed on uh, in families, and and you know it's an inheritance that is a part of um, a family, but also a part of a, a larger um, a larger culture. So, like as an Irish American, for example. Um, you know, uh, I take great delight in listening to uh, to that music, and it's so great to make the connection as a Southern American as well, 
to how that informed uh, music in Appalachia. And then I lived for three years in Alaska and almost all the music up there was brought up by gold miners, right? And of course you've got that in conjunction with the native music, which my wife um, was able to uh, enter into working um, in the schools up there in, in, in the remote villages in the Northwest borough. And so, um, yeah, it's, there's something about um, starting at home and developing appreciation for the music of your people, so to speak. Mm -hmm. What did you grow up with, Adrian? What, what kind of musical background? Well, I mean, my mom was majoring in music when I was growing up. So she was in college when she was pregnant with me at Kent State University. I was in wombed in, in the May 4th shootings. I was born two months later. <laughs> my mom majored in flute in Spanish. And uh, so she played flute, piano, and I think French horn. And uh, so I was, you know, in the womb, right? Because mom was music major. And then she she was taking classes like one or two at a time, all the way till I was 10 years old. Um, mom and dad didn't have much money. My dad was a blue collar worker. His parents are, um, are Pennsylvania Dutch from Altoona, Pennsylvania. And my grandpa, his dad, uh, played the guitar and sang on the live radio back in the days when live radio happened in Pennsylvania. Like, and it was, it was bluegrass, you know, he called real cowboy music, real cowboy music. So I grew up with my grandfather doing that kind of like you just around on the picnic table, you know, and he just pull a guitar out and sing hillbilly songs and hymns and his favorite song. The one I, I, I cannot listen to without crying is the old, what old rugged cross. That was his favorite hymn. He sang it a lot. And then, and then with my mom. So I, I grew up kind of with the hillbilly music on my dad's side. And then my mom it, going into the cultured side of music, kind of like you with opera and, you know, hillbilly. And so, um, but I went to my mom's classes at Kent State with her often. I remember going with her often because I was going until I was 10. So whenever she couldn't get grandma to babysit me or I was, and I was off school because she took summer classes. So I went with her a lot in the summer and I loved her classes. I remember loving her professors and some of her professors even would involve me. I was just this little pipsqueak, but they would ask me questions, you know, <laughs> I remember. And uh, so I grew up with that and mom teaching music classes out of our home. She taught recorder and flute and piano uh, from, I mean, I remember her having piano students and flute students come over when I was like seven, seven or eight. And so, you know, so I grew up around it and I was in ballet. I started ballet when I was four because I begged and begged my mother. This is a story. I wanted to take ballet so badly. And I remember, I remember when I was two or three listening to Scott Joplin entertainer and loving that song. It would make me hyper and go crazy running around in my diaper. I remember loving that song so much. And John Philip Sousa marches, loving them. I think they would play them on the record player or something. And I remember mom has a picture of me standing up against up an old record player on my tippy toes in my diaper, listening to, you know, I think it was either Sousa or, or Scott Joplin. I just love them. And, um, and, and I remember wanting to take ballet. I, I don't know what made me want to take ballet, but my I remember my first temper tantrum. At least it wasn't my first temper tantrum. It's the one I remember having. When I asked my mom to take ballet and she said, we don't have enough money for ballet slippers. And when she took me to the store shortly thereafter to buy shoes, I threw myself on the floor at the shoe store and had a temper tantrum because I did not want her to buy me shoes. 
I wanted her to buy me ballet slippers. And if she had the money for one or the other, I didn't want it to be shoes. I wanted it to be ballet slippers. And so I had a real heart for dancing very young because of music. So music and dancing, it's the same, you know, we're back to the same, it's the foundation. And uh, my mom did put me in ballet when I was four because I really, really begged. And so I grew up with beautiful classical music because of going to ballet. And by the time I was eight, I was in ballet three times a week. And by the time I was 13, I was in ballet like seven days a week, <laughs> eight hours a day, Saturday, Sunday. I was very serious. It was what I wanted to do when I grew up. I want to be a ballerina. And so beautiful music. I was surrounded by it. And, and you know, I remember loving choir and, and when I choir and band and I played flute. In high school, all of my classes were in choir and band and music and voice and music theory. I took music theory in 10th grade. And so I do have, I did have some really fantastic teachers, fantastic teachers. Um, you know, and it, it breaks my heart. It broke my heart when, when I was out of school to just see music programs getting cut from schools and, and being, music has become just this optional you know, side elective. class, elective, even in yeah. elementary school. And right. and then music teachers have to travel on a cart from class to class. They don't have their own music room. Right, right, uh, right. And I, I feel like this is a really important uh, topic even to discuss for, we have a lot of listeners who, who are new to classical education. They want to start a classical school. You know, the importance of prioritizing music, because I really think that music is the foundation of every other so all of the seven liberal arts, music is like, you have to have music as your foundation. It, it touches on everything and it, 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 it shapes the soul. It's, it's more, it's, you know, and music is the universal language. Everybody understands music. That's right. Well, everything you, you know, said is, you know, I'm going, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's, this is like my, this is my passion. It's like, we've got to get music, yeah. re robust music programs. And that's one, I guess that's a good place to jump into like, the practical for our listeners who are new teachers. I mean, I see questions. Okay, I'm a new teacher at a classical school and I'm teaching art and music, but how do I make it classical? Like, what's the difference between teaching music at a public school and teaching music at a classical school? Like, what does that look like for K-5, 6, 8, high school? When do we begin teaching music theory and how does it all fit? These are big questions, but I, I, think, I think you can help. I think you can help our listeners wrestle with some of this, with some ideas. Well, you, if you are teaching in classical academy, if you are homeschooling, um, or you're actually able to supplement what is going on in a public school situation, you are able to balance out the scales. And you have to remember that public school teachers have required curriculum, they're handed what they're going to do, they're rolling that cart around, they're doing the best they can, they may be driving to four different schools, they're having to start at seven in the morning, they may also be teaching cello starting at seven in the morning. Yeah. And, you know, they have difficult, amazing, and, and they're still lifelines for kids. What So the public school music teachers are heroic. Yes. I've watched many of students, of my students, SMU, we had a great big bunch of music majors, you know, that went into music education and have, and get to follow them now, you know, and to see the, the lives they've changed just as their lives were changed. And whether they end up at the Met, which some of our students have, recently just another one, but, or whether they end up in a little school that is so far away that you, you don't even know where that place is, and they're working with uh, 12 people in the band, they're changing lives. And that's been one of the difficult things about the shutdown is that kids who mm -hmm. 
you know, public school kids especially, but even that where the arts have been the thing that balance out all the yuck and to see that, but that's a different topic completely. We we won't ever be, we'll, we'll have to look back to see how that all came out. And I think we already know how it comes out. But moving away from that, everything we've talked about from the Irish folk music and dance, and this is all acoustic music. It Okay, you were listening on a stereo to a record, which is pretty close to acoustic if you think about it. But we're not talking about needing big electronic things. We don't need big speaker systems. The, the number one thing, if we want to start dividing at ages, the very first thing is everything we've talked about, which is singing and dancing and singing and banging on pots and playing the bells and you know all the fun. We used to have the rhythm band instruments. I don't even know if they still do that. But, you know, but I just remember you do too, I bet. Those when you're in first grade or mm -hmm. I didn't have kindergarten, but you know, you had that you went three times a week to the doors and you pulled out the rhythm band instruments. I mean yes. nothing was cooler. Not making percussion sounds, there's very little that's better than that for in a child's life. And the banging and the hitting and the rhythms and the popping and the, this is the basis of not just music, but math, thank you. Right. Rhythm is where we learn our math, rhythms where we learn to think and calculate and long, long, short, short, or I said that wrong, did that? <laughs> short, short, long. Um, yes. And where you start hearing proportion, it's where you begin to shade with sounds as things get louder and they get louder and you begin to become aware of shaping. Yes. Every single thing, and and timbre, the difference between a triangle and maybe what the noise you make banging on. Um, I'm trying to think of some cardboard box, you know, which 20th century composers write in the co compositions for that matter. I mean, you really you're developing your ear, you're you're tuning your mind. You cannot get too simple with children. People say, well, we can't afford lessons. You don't need lessons. Okay, it's, it's, hey, if you have lessons, fine. If you have good lessons, don't waste money on bad lessons. Don't take lessons with Mrs. Whoever or Mr. So because somebody the church told you they're the best person, you know. And and of course, that's a whole different topic. But I always say, people, if kids are not learning and they're not excited, something is wrong. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, if you've got, you, you, no, yeah, you still have to help them remember to practice if they are taking lessons. But you, generally speaking, they should come away excited from a lesson. And if right. you're not, you may need to reevaluate where that money's going to. Seriously. Yeah. yeah, interestingly, what, you, what you're making me think about, and this is something I think about a lot, being the father of um, three uh, children all under the age of five. Um, you know, fortunately, I've, I've had some, some good uh, advice uh, from people, well, Adrian being one of them, um, about the, the real risk and, and, and danger involved of trying to jump in way too early to some sort of like intense academic approach to um, to anything really, um, and what you're describing in terms of music, I, I think you're you're saying the same thing. Um, you know, it doesn't. It's not necessarily the case that you know um, Johnny, who is three, needs to be enrolled in you know a formal uh, lesson to get the the benefits and to and to find delight and joy in music. Uh, as we've been describing it. And I wonder, um, you know, perhaps perhaps this is changing. I don't I don't know. Um, I know that my parents' generation was a generation in which, um, you know, I got to, whatever I wanted to do, whatever my whim at the time was, I got to, I got to try it, whether that was karate or soccer, and my dad made sure we had the gear, right? And but 
one of the things I reflect back on is that none of that really ever stuck or lasted. I would do something for a year or two max. And so I wonder, um, I guess part of the benefit there is um, getting to sort of explore and, and try new things. Um, but uh, is there anything to be said about the, the parent who's just really wanting their student to develop, um, you know, like, like their little girl begs them, please, mommy, let me take piano, or as you did your mother, let me take ballet. Um, and that, that can involve a lot of cost and a lot of time, a lot of effort on behalf of parents. Mm -hmm. um, but then the child doesn't necessarily have the will to kind of see it through and, and enter into the higher levels of, of, uh, of joy that can be found there. What would you say to that parent who's just sort of concerned or um, trying to think through the best way to handle um, those early years with music and dance? That, that is a difficult dance, uh, especially in our world where there's so many competing interests and there's so many, you know, flashy things. Mm -hmm. going on. Let's just call them flashy. Mm -hmm. Look at, okay, and I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but look at what's happened to birthday parties. Right. <laughs> Seriously, do I need to say any more? Right. Enough, all right. But, okay, and, and you know, more powerful, whatever. But, I mean, I, there's something pretty exciting about just bringing it out to the cake to the dining room and singing to the kid and you know i mean sure. you can make things as complicated as you want and if you have a parent who dumps a bunch of money into something and then of course it doesn't quite work for all kinds of reasons some of which have nothing to do with the child's ability even mm -hmm. then you're burned mm -hmm. and then you say well i'm not doing that again and we're not buying another trumpet probably shouldn't have bought the first trumpet you know there's ways to borrow trumpets thank you but if you have a child I mean, Adrian, you were already at four, had a clear vision. You had a vision. And and if you see that there's something there, you have a three-year-old that truly, you know, you maybe do a couple of Suzuki classes or you do whatever. You mm -hmm. take that child over to somebody who does play them fiddle or the, you know, Brahms violin concerto. I don't care which it is. And you see the, a genuine ability and you can also find people to help you find instruments. I mean, people are giving away instruments right now, by the way. I mean, find pianos. <laughs> they, mm -hmm. they beg you to get the piano out of great grandma Lucy's house, you know? That's true. You see, there is a strong ability, just as you would with a small child, young child, with a razzle-dazzle bit of uh, uh, mathematical genius mm. or robotics or something. Then you go, you, you do everything you can to move heaven and earth to be able to really stay on the level. And you get good advice and you really demand good teaching. And, you, and, and yes, it can be difficult, but there are ways. There are ways to get people. And by the way, there's a whole lot of teachers. If they've got a phenomenal young student, they will teach for free or they will devote attention to or they will ask someone else. I mean, I've got somebody with a quarter violin. She needs a half violin. Can you help me? You've got 10 of them in your closet. You know, people will rally around the genuinely, exceptionally talented kids. And all kids have talent. That, by the way, is if you've ever read Suzuki's writings, um, they, they will break your heart. They're so beautiful. I've never read them in Japanese. I've read them in English. But, um, you know, the, his sense of the talent that's in every child, the musicality that's in every child, and that's what he wanted to touch, not turn people into concert violinists. But to, so, again, you. but there will be children that are seriously, virtuosically mm -hmm. talented. And then you have that situation with your other children, you you can be much more relaxed 
And as I say, the acoustical thing, we've, we've already skidded it, but let me just say it. Singing, singing with the family, singing in the car. Oh, singing in the car. Get the DVD yeah. machines out of cars, please. Are they even mm -hmm. using here? Don't give them a phone. Oh, please, oh, please, mm. please, please. I beg of you, I'm on my knees. I'm weeping. I'm mm -hmm. begging you to keep the phones out of these kids' hands. Okay, there yes. might be some emergency. You know, you might be at the waiting room of a hospital and somebody's ill. I know there are exceptions. Flip phones. Right. Flip phones. You can do flip phones. <laughs> but, he has yeah. to, but do not put these screens in front of them. Right. Do not music something where you push this button or Alexa, play all the Beethoven symphonies. Hmm. So, okay, you've got so what? You might as well say, Alexa, start screaming into a speaker. You know, it would be just as much good for somebody. I mean, seriously, the technology used wisely is stunning and marvelously helpful in your education of your children. It can be, and I can say more about that in a minute. I'd like to actually some things. But the idea that you're doing something, handing these kids screens, and uh, oh, please, it is no. negative. It is damaging. It kills their ears. It kills their eyes. And it kills their bodies. Was that clear enough? Yes. Ab absolutely. <laughs> it, it reminds me, um, and if, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to share a, a story from about a year ago, right before I guess it was a little over a year ago because it was right before Christmas break. I was teaching a, a group of seventh graders, a seventh grade history class. And, uh, you know, it was right before the break. And I, I decided to sort of get off topic or somehow transitioned into um, talking about being in touch with reality. I think we were talking about what they were going to do over their Christmas break. And someone asked me, well, Mr. Bailey, what are you going to be doing? I said, well, I'll probably be spending a fair amount of time splitting firewood because uh, that's part of how we heat our home and um, we have wood burning fireplaces. I asked for a show of hands um, and all of uh, one, well, only one child in the, uh, in the class of, I think there were 21 uh, seventh graders had ever uh, split wood and only a handful of them um, had wood burning fireplaces. The ones that had fireplaces um, most of them were, were gas, you know, you flip a button and there it is. Yeah. And so uh, we were talking about how splitting wood, there's something about it that, that puts you in touch with what is real. And, and of course it heats you twice. Right. And, <laughs> and they just loved, they just loved my description of it. And I was telling them about how my children would help me and how I would split it and they would fetch it and stack it. And they said, oh, Mr. Bailey, isn't that dangerous? I said, oh, it's very dangerous. And they love it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so right. they were thinking about this and, and one child raised his hand and said, well, Mr. Bailey, um, that sounds great and all, but is there something we can do to be in touch with what's real inside? <gasps> and I said, well, I said, you could gather around the piano and sing songs with your family. And a little girl in the middle of the classroom shot her hand up and she said, Mr. Bailey, I can play the piano. I said, you can. And fortunately, I just happened to be teaching in a room that had a piano. It was one of the situations where we had to share classrooms that had a piano in the back corner. And I said, well, let's, let's do that right now. And so she went back there and the whole class gathered around and, you know, in, in her way, um, for where she was at in her, in, in her lessons and in her practice, played some Christmas music and we sang together. And it was, it was one of the more real moments I've had with a group of students uh, centered around the piano there. 
And I hope I hope they think about that, and I hope they go home and they tell mom, "Hey, get on uh, get on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, and let's get a piano." <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> and let's sing. <clears throat> you know, once upon a time, there was a teacher who was telling his students about. I mean, that almost sounds like a fairy tale. It's so beautiful, right? Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> Well, and, and that's what they remember. And that's what parents and classical, you know, baking cake and, you know, okay, there's a place for the box mix, but basically making a cake, a real cake, you know, I mean, everything that we do with our kids, singing while you do this, not dancing while you do this, put on uh, In the Mood or Frank Sinatra. I know that's electric, you're pushing it button, but you're putting it on so you can dance your way around the kitchen. You know, yeah. put on big band music, put on Sousa, um, you know, stringing the old popcorn, all of this it's real as your child those children said the real on the outside real on the inside and it is powerful it is what they will remember it is <laughs> what they will teach their children um you are providing as we say all of the basis for what they're going to do as older people is coming you don't know how many lives were changed that day sir you don't mm -hmm. well thank you um adrian and i are really working hard to encourage teachers and parents and administrators too to bring these sort of things back into the classroom um but let, let me tell you just just how um how far removed we are and how cut off we are from our traditions um one of the questions that um we see every once in a while um come come across our our um our facebook page where, where we feel a lot of questions um, and th these are these are people who are um, who are out there asking great questions, looking for help. And so, so when I say this, I'm not I'm not saying it to um, to in any way, um, you know, uh, denigrate the, the the person who asked the question because it's it's an honest question. And the question was something to the effect of, when am I or how am I supposed to be using mother goose rhymes? I know I know they're important, right? Okay, got it. Mother goose, we need it. I believe it, but how and when? Uh -huh. And when you think about them, almost all of them have something, some action in the household that they're connected to, right? <laughs> when you're going to bed, when you're baking the bread, when uh -huh. you're looking for your lost shoe, right? I mean, all of these rhymes are just connected with the life of the family. And so start there, you know, start singing and 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 doing the poetry um, right there along with your children, you know. And when you when you go outside, you know, when you get them out of bed, right? I try to do this all the time. I like get my kids out of bed. And like you have to come out and see the stars, right? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and it's cold, and they're and sometimes yes. they're like, no, please, let's not. <laughs> but it's like, no, you have to see this, and yeah. only then can they really, you know, when you're tucking them in, can they really you know, sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, How I Wonder What You Are, and really wonder about it, you know, and make that connection between the music and the poetry and, and what, they're, what they're seeing. I want to hear what Carol has to say about teaching with nursery rhymes and music and Mother Goose, but I want to share something. So I, you know, I have five grandkids now, three and under, and when I hold my little baby grandkids, I immediately want to sing nursery rhyme songs to them that I know because I had, I grew up with them. And, you know, I'm singing, I'm a little teapot, short and stout, you know, like, or a little, sing a song of sixpence a pocket full of rye, you know, I just start singing to them. And I love it. And, and I, 
and it's funny, I grew up with, I had a little record player. Do you remember, Carol, those little 45 Peter Pan brand, the Peter Pan records? It was the company was called Peter Pan. Absolutely. Yeah. And I had, a, my mom had us, I mean, I had a stack of them. I must have had 50 Peter Pan records. And I remember the songs they were, she had all those Mother Goose nursery rhyme songs. And I remember them from playing those records over and over all the time as a child. And I still have, I don't have very many of those. I have one or two, but I still have my husband's mom. She bought him all of the records that like the Peter and the Wolf and all of the different, oh, I, I have a whole stack of them out there, but I still have all the big albums um, that were my husband's growing up in the seventies. We even still have the star Wars album, you know? And then I had my, one of my favorites <laughs> was the point me and my arrow, <laughs> uh, Nielsen, Harry Nielsen is one of my favorite. And it's a story, you know, a whole story. I still love that. I can sing almost the whole thing by heart, but you know, just growing up with those little records as a child and my mom showing me very young, how to operate that record player. And I, I feel like those nursery rhymes I learned from those records will never ever leave me. And so, but I want to hear your kind of answer to incorporating mother goose and nursery rhymes in the home for the moms and that don't have this, like, where do they start? How do they find them? You have resources I know on your website. What, you know, where else do you recommend people go for this stuff? Cause I, there's a lot of people who didn't grow up hearing these songs. I got an answer. I've got yeah. an answer. No, listen, first of all, you, what if you had a group of very fancy people, very fancy teachers and parents and administrators you say, I've got a kit for you. We have a curriculum with it. You will get language development. You will get memory work. You will get extraordinary vocabulary access. You will get windows into history and culture across many, many centuries at the same that the child will be able to open through the next 12 years or 10 years or eight years of that child's education into history, culture, and actual events like battles and kings and all of this. Uh, you will get the, the sort of the science of rhythm, you know, on and on and on. And someone says, oh, and it's free. You can say, it's free. And they say, what is it? You say nursery rhymes, nursery rhymes. They're some of the most, they represent the most sophisticated aspects of our history and our culture and our language. And they use a very complicated language and phenomenal rhythmic mm -hmm. uh, structures. And where you get it, and okay, you don't have to do this. I mean, first of all, all kinds of things are online and they're free. But you know what we have done, we've never got rid of our record players. And I kept my daughter's, like, she had a record player even when, you know, nobody still had record players. You can get, if you can get these, tur and turntables are back, by the way, mm -hmm. get on eBay. Let me tell you, I, we've probably got 45 to 50 of these Peter Pan things that I've bought recently, albums. I know we, there's limited money, but it's a whole lot cheaper than buying some fancy technology and yeah. some of these same recordings. Okay, what is the good things about these old recordings? Um, in addition to teaching children how to use them, and yes, they're gonna scratch some stuff and they're gonna break some stuff, but they do that with CDs anyway. And they're gonna break other technology too. I mean, I hate to say that, but it happens. We all know that they're gonna drop it in the tub. Actually, I'd rather drop the record in the tub than the phone in the tub, right? But the fact is, um, they used great orchestras and they used absolutely fantastic narrators. Mm -hmm. um, the best people, including the top pop singer, like Bing Crosby did a recording of, of Nursery Rhymes, which I just recently bought. Cyril Richard, Boris Karloff, the recordings by, um, um, I'm trying to think of all the folk, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on these wonderful folk 
singers that I have loved and grown up, and I can't I can't believe because I wasn't thinking about talking this. I was going to talk to you about operas for your high schoolers, but nonetheless, it'll come. I don't want to. It'll come. Burl Ives. Burl Ives. That's what I wanted to come up. Yeah. With. Almost all these old personalities. Look, some of the stuff is politically incorrect right now. I know that folk culture is politically correct by the way ladies and gentlemen and it always will be mm -hmm. and we may think we're all sanitary with our nose in the ears right now but we're doing our own version of incorrect and somebody 50 years ago is gonna look back at us and laugh so right. or not laugh as the case may be yeah, but true. the point is nursery rhymes are one of the most valuable and the cultures that have them and of course the english language is rich in them but so is the russian language and the german language and that you can even introduce like we do a lot with german kids songs around here and there's some wonderful online video <laughs> things we bought cassettes oh we play the old cassettes where we listen to um uh hende waschen hende waschen muss every child must wash her hands you know we listen to these things and you learn a little bit of a new language and you hear songs and you hear melodies get it all in there they they cannot get enough of it yes when they hit whatever grade a certain grade they're going to turn their noses up fine but then you'll have new things to give them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think that's quite right um you know we uh I currently teach at an all-boys school, and we recently did a, uh, a Christmas program that involved um, a lot of singing and dancing. And um, those boys, uh, in the practices leading up to it, um, it's interesting because th th the irony is that they will say, I hate poetry, or I don't like drama, but they are never more dramatic nor poetic when they are expressing their disdain for those two things. <laughs> <laughs> So, which I love, yeah. the, which I delight in pointing out to them, and it, it, it makes them smile because they know that, in their heart of hearts, um, you know, uh, I hear them, I hear them all the time when we're out, um, when we're in the bus or when we're out um, on a camping trip. They have a wealth of um, songs from all sorts of television shows and all sorts of movies that they know and love, and so there is something about the teacher saying this is something i want you to love that immediately creates it's like an, any assigned reading it there's mm -hmm. something about it that that requires some some level of maturity to say okay yes i will trust you and yes i will um but if you're consistent um and if you're it seems to me that if you're willing to put yourself out there um like for example um one day i showed up and it, it, it happened to be um burns night and so it was just a perfect um, connection with what I was teaching in my literature class and, and the occasion. But I just stood up in front of the class and um, in my best you know, way, I, I said, you know, my love is like a red, red rose. And the kids like didn't know what to do with themselves. So Mr. <laughs> Bailey is singing right. to us, right? <laughs> And right. interestingly, when I finished and, and it, it, you know, I, my voice cracked and I, I, I struggled through parts of it and I got a little emotional, too, because I'm singing in front of a bunch of, uh, you know, 10th and 11th graders at this point. And uh, but they they clapped afterwards. Like, I don't know, maybe they didn't know what else to do, but they, they were like, <laughs> wow, Mr. Bailey just opened class with a song. And it just seems to me that, um, you know, you don't have to be, uh, as we were saying before, you don't have to be professionally trained you don't have to be andre bocelli or josh right. groban um to to sing with your children and with your students we talked about um nursery rhymes we talked about folk music 
Uh, I just recently read an essay that you wrote in um, Simply Classical Journal, a publication by Memorial Press on, uh, the title is A Child's Journey into Sacred Music. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talk about everything from Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, to Handel's Messiah, and everything in between. And uh, not to say that those are even on to, I mean, they're, they're more similar than, than we even know. Um, to, to paint a, another picture of, of what we're sort of entering into, um, I grew up in, um, in a youth group situation, going to summer camps. I met my wife at a summer camp. And we have a shared um, hymnal and, and we have a shared um, collection of devotional songs. I have found that my students largely do not. Exactly. And exactly. I think the reason is uh, because they're, they're, uh, the, the music they hear in church is whatever is sort of the top, um, you know, the top 10 or 20 worship and praise songs of that year and it changes from year to year and that breaks my heart because yep. that's that's not enough sustained time spent singing and 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 being enveloped in a song to actually have something that stays with you for the rest of your life and so i wonder if we could talk a bit about sacred music and 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 maybe just make a plea to, to church leaders and the classical Christian teachers on how we can, you know, address this? Well, you know, I, I do hymn workshops at a lot of conferences and I do webinars on hymns, which I hope people can join into and join us at professorcarol.com, which is where all this stuff, quote unquote, takes place virtually. And the others, of course, happening at live conferences. But that shared amount of hymnody that you're referring to uh, is is a major, another lost treasure. You would never let vegetables and fruit drop out of your child's diet, mm. possible, or protein. But we've done that. We've taken the protein and the fruit. And look, there's some very good praise music. There's some very effective praise music. I've been an organist and pianist in churches where I've played praise services. I am not denigrating that. But if you are only hearing that, and you're shutting off the tradition of even in English language 400 years of Hennedy, with the fantastic vocabulary again let's say you let's forget the faith support the support to your faith and your spiritual growth let's just throw that out on the side right now let's talk about language and your musical ear and your memory and the intellectual development of coming to grapple with even one good verse of a good long lived, I think it's the right way, hymn that has made a difference over several centuries. Whether you want it to be a mighty fortress or whether, in our family, for some reason, because my father loved, oh God, our help in ages past. And somehow I started on that with my grandchildren, which is not necessarily the most cute or attractive or, you know, I don't even know why I did it. And now that's when we sing all the way, you know, going to school. And I want to tell them, we picked this really solid, not even very exciting hymn, but to them, that's the hymn that says the day's going to be all right. Grandma's singing, oh, God, my help in age has passed instead of getting mad at us that we didn't, you know, make our beds. So all is well, you know, mm -hmm. so, I mean, it doesn't, but the fact is when these kids are 20, 30, 50 and 70, what will yeah. sustain them? That's right. And you're feeding a new generation 
There better be some solid theology like precious Lord, take my hand, lead me to the promised land of Tommy Dorsey. Oh, you, you know, Thomas Joyce. Yeah, I mean, you know that that spiritual uh, that written when he came back from tour and discovered that his wife and his newborn baby both had died while he was on the road. I think about 1923, 1927 or so. You better have something to to hold you up. And it, it's going to have to be a lot more substantial than a lot of what these kids are being brought up with. Get the hymnals back in the pews. I talk about that. I deputize people. I get absolutely outrageous about the fact that we've taken hymnals out. Um, and parishioners can do something about that. Schools can do something about that if they have chapel situations. Forget if you don't have chapel. Get the hymnals in the classroom anyway. Get everybody's hymnal. Bring them all in. Bring in every hymnal you can find. Let's look at this as, you don't want to look at it as religious instruction? Fine, don't. Look at it as literature. Look at his music. Look at his history. Learn to use the indexes. Learn to use the metric index. Learn how you line out a song. Learn how our colonial forefathers lined out the psalms. The history of our hymnody is so rich and it's so lost if all we are getting is the last, shall we say, 23 seconds worth of Christian music in our churches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that you said get the hymnals in the classrooms. I want to I want to camp on that for one second because I've worked for years with teachers transitioning them into a classical model. And mm, this is the part that shocks me the most. I'm constantly training teachers how to teach classically. And one of them is incorporate music into your history lessons, into your English lessons. Have them, you know, when you're studying Vikings, listen to Viking music, you know, and it's amazing to me because we, we, I was writing curriculum, humanities curriculum for third through eighth grade, and we, we would put all kinds of music suggestions in every lesson. And what blew me away when we went and met with the teachers, almost every time, there was always several teachers at every school. When I'd ask them, how's it going with the music? You know, how is it going with incorporating that in your lessons? Oh, well, I gave that to the music teacher. Well, they're scared. And I just, yeah, well, okay, so so, so talk to the teacher. It, yeah. Well, maybe they're scared because they're not familiar with it. But the other part of it, I think, is, too, they feel like, how do I fit it in? And I think this is a, a different mindset as a classical teacher. It's not about fitting it in. And so as a classical teacher, it's not about the checklist and the objectives of the lesson and fitting it all in. It's about yeah. shaping their infections. It's about yeah. giving the children beauty right. within the whole context of the whole lesson. And yeah. I think that this is a total mindset shift that yeah. we're, we're talking to here. And so I love, yeah, bring the hymnals into the classroom. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian classical school, why not? And like Trey did in the middle of a lesson, you know what? Let's stop and sing a hymn. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't want to jump up, but I remember at a conference when I was doing these workshops, there was a little girl, maybe fourth grade, and she brought her mother over to our booth. She said, yeah. Mommy, look, look, because she had somehow been gone with another family to that yeah. workshop, and her mother was at a different talk. And she said, Mommy, look, look. And she said, Could you bring that book out that you were using upstairs? And I said, which book, you know, and then I realized she meant a hymnal. And she said, look, mommy, all the songs are here in one place. Hmm. Wow. From a child, I will never forget that. Yeah. Yeah, it seems that uh, one of the things we're, we're getting at is something that, um, you know, uh, 
Well, something that Charlotte Mason talks about, which is which is about you know relationships, and and music puts you in a relationship with um, with sound and with words and with your own. Um, well, it just it just there's so much that that is bundled up in there, and as a literature teacher, I was uh, I was tasked once with teaching uh, Scar uh, Scarlet Letter. And um, I had to think very carefully about how I was going to teach this book because it's probably one of the most misunderstood, um, uh, you know, um, American novels. Um, and it's uniquely misunderstood um, by uh, in Christian schools. Mm -hmm. And it's uniquely understood in Christian schools um, because of... Uh, a lot of misunderstandings we have about Puritans, right? Right. And, yes. And so here's here's one of the things that I became persuaded by. Um, I think one of the reasons why we misunderstand um, a Scarlet Letter or the Scarlet Letter is because um, we misunderstand the Puritans, and one of the reasons we misunderstand the Puritans is because um, we uh, we don't sing. Um, the music <laughs> that they handed down to us, right? And so I brought in a bunch of uh, recordings of um, of early, you know, Massachusetts uh, hymns, and uh, and I played these. And one other one student in the room, one other person besides myself, had ever heard anything like it, and that person had heard it in his grandmother's church. Mm -hmm. right? And the rest of them ha having um, a soul diet. This is what they get in the pews or the folding chairs in the um, in the basketball gymnasium, <laughs> and what they get in the car um, is all praise and, and worship music, yeah, contemporary music, and so there's a lost connection not just with um, the theology and with the uh, with the sounds, but but also with those people, right? And so we can we so then we enter into the story and we they can't relate in any substantial way. Um, and so I tried to make, draw that connection with the music, but what we can't do is just expect that the literature teacher or the history teacher, or even the music teacher for that matter, can do it all. That's the same old sort of um, fallacy that people fall into with you know, the, uh, the youth minister, which is like, well, here's my teen, right? You know, like give them faith or make him a good Christian. And you can't do that with teachers either. You have to have this, um, the school and the home and the church have to be working together. And so that's why I, I think, you know, the work you're doing is, is so important because you draw those connections and you give resources um, because as much as the students are cut off from these traditions, um, their teachers are largely cut off from it as well. Absolutely, because they're at that age, they didn't get them. I'm one of the last generations that got this as normal. It was normal. Pianos were in classrooms. Teachers were relatively educated. They could play something. They had it themselves, these traditions, and it was absolutely normal. And and just to, I know that we're going to have to think about time, but I, this has got to be going down as a red letter day because I'm always talking about opera as the door, especially with your middle schoolers, your high schoolers, to open up literature, to open up history, to open up great debates of uh, on morality and every other social issue because opera is where all of these, and then we're going to have to have yes. another 
session on that because that that is critical the way we're, we're looking at littler kids now but starting even from fourth and fifth grade up i mean my kids started with opera yep. when they were five you know but uh, every issue that has been it, it, and now we would see it in musicals Right. It, but musicals are operas. That's what they are. We just have to give them a different name. There's the reason why we give them a different name, et cetera. But the, the stage and stage dramas that are sung are where you go. The teachers don't have to do anything because it's already been done. We're, you don't reinvent the wheel. The hymnal, you can teach history and geography and math. You know, these things already exist and you do not have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, and that's, I'm, I'm throwing a bunch of stuff out, but. Um, and the kids are not going to question it because the, everything's new to them anyway. But it's the teachers of these younger teachers, especially you. You have to have mercy upon them and sympathy for them. They weren't given these tools. They just weren't. Right. And I want to say something to this too on the bringing up the, the, that maybe the only exposure they've really had to Christian music is praise and worship music, which. I want our listeners to hear. We're not saying praise and worship music is bad. But no. we're saying, I think what we're saying is similar to what C.S. Lewis has said in his uh, essay on the reading of old books, which is basically like, I think he said, for every new book you read, you should read three old books or something. You know, I, I can't remember exactly. Trey, maybe you would remember better. But right. it's a great essay. I think it applies to this. It applies perfectly to this, that for every new song you're listening to, you should be listening to all these other old songs first. <laughs> Right. Do you remember that essay, what it said? Yes. It doesn't matter the number. It's the right concept. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so right. because and kind of his argument in there, too, is that because the old stuff is lasted and all the new stuff yeah. is too new, we don't even really know the repercussions of the new. Right. But the, the old stuff is timeless. And so, yeah. He has a lot of other reasons he says in that essay too. It's great. It's a great essay. Everybody should read it. <laughs> well, you know, it's a peculiar American problem too, to be able to, I mean, I'm not saying that no other country has the separations that we are talking about between their traditions, their artistic traditions. And, and, and this is just one random thing that people might want to look at. There's a film called the singing revolution. It's available on, I guess, I mean, probably can stream it, The Singing Revolution, which is a documentary on the every four-year song festival held in the Baltic countries. This one happened to be in Estonia. And it takes the history of this festival, which ends up bringing to Tallinn maybe, I don't know the numbers. I'll just throw out a number, 30,000, 40,000. I don't know. Phenomenal numbers of people that are coming from villages, coming from schools, who learn a, and would already know, a prescribed group of folk songs that are not that simple to sing because they've been growing up with them so they can do it. And these festivals are held, there's, they're held in Latvia, they're held in Lithuania. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's true in many European countries that the folk and the classical traditions are not let, allowed to drop at all. But what's so cool about showing, say, high schoolers, middle schoolers, a film like this, is what's it laden with history, the nationalist struggles of these countries, what happened to these festivals during the First World War, what happened under communism when the fact that these folk traditions were dangerous to the Soviet ideal, which is that, you know, out with the old, and we'll keep a little bit of the old, but we're talking about the new Soviet man. And here's people singing folk songs that are talking about freedom and the national 
languages and opposed to the hegemony of the Russian language that is trying to, you know, be taught officially in all the schools. When they, and, and you get to see this, you get to see a whole progression to the 20th century, and then you see where it is now, and you see all these young faces of young people who are passionate about this, and you see this with dance festivals in many parts of Europe or elsewhere in the world. The point is our kids have no, usually, no reference point that this mm. is cool, this is hip, this is important, this is powerful, and this is my legacy. And sometimes even one film like that can open the floodgates, um, especially to teenagers, to see, oh, over there, if you're 16, like, oh, you know about this stuff. And it's, it's very important, and everybody is interested. Oh, you know, they need to be reminded how insular we are. You can talk about all this technology all you want, but it has not made us more broad in our understanding. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, we, we've covered so many good things here and, and maybe just um, I, I could try to recap some uh, just for our, our listeners sake. Um, I, I'm excited to go back and listen to this conversation and, and, and think more about some of the things that we could we could continue to discuss in, in, in future conversations. Hopefully, uh, if we could have you back on, um, I think if I were to if I were to um, sort of go back and, and cover some of the, the high points. Um, you know. In, in your homes, uh, get out, get out the pots and pans, get out the cardboard boxes, get out the, uh, get out the, um, all the various uh, sound, sound making things you can find and, and, and start early uh, with, with, um, with bringing that, the joy of just um, making, making uh, music in your own home um, and, and get on Craigslist and get, get one of those free pianos and, and, and put it in the, in the corner, even if it doesn't fit very well in the living room probably just get the get the big screen TV out of the way and, and then you'll have some space <laughs> and and sing those sing those songs together um, you know get out the records and, and and play them and and my wife for her birthday recently got a, a record player one of those really large cabinet ones and my children are fascinated by it in a way that they've never been fascinated by um, by a speaker that you talk to. <laughs> Than plays right like the um, like the picture of me on my in my diapers like exactly looking yeah. up at the record and watching it spin and dancing yes, <laughs> yes. so yeah. so bring it in um you know do, sing that sing the the you know do the do the mother goose and, and the and the nonsense rhymes um throughout the day and connect those with with the things you're doing um just in the life of your home um sing with your students uh and and bring music into your history classes your literature classes etc don't just re don't just relegate it to the music program or or you know whatever they do as an elective. Um, uh, bring that into their experience as a whole, and then um, you know if your church uh, isn't uh, isn't bringing this music in, um, I don't know. Get, I guess sing it in your homes or um, or uh, or really think carefully about sort of the um, the the tradition that you're uh, immersing your family into or, or sometimes the lack thereof and think about think about reconnecting yourself and your family with uh, the great saints and uh, men and women of god who have who have gone before us and many of them um, gave up their lives so that this music could be preserved and 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 that we can uh, share in it today and you better get used to it because um as far as I know, my reading of scripture says there's going to be a lot of singing in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
It's true. Well, I'd also like our listeners to send us more questions for Carol so we can have her back and know what they really want to hear. Uh, I'm sure that they have more questions. I, I still have more questions. I feel like we, we could go on for about three more hours. <laughs> make a series. And, and I do want to invite people to come and see what we have. Um, that was get... my next question. Tell, oh, okay. tell our listeners about well, all your all your resources. You have amazing resources. I want well, them to know. That. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not so good about this. I'm always the worst marketer for myself, and I always will be. My husband says, oh, you do that. You do these talks, and you never even mention that we that we have stuff we make. And I said, oh, I forgot. But I'm not the only <laughs> one who does that. Andrew Poudoua is very fond of doing that. He said, oh, I forgot to mention our company. <laughs> no, that's the best thing, isn't it? But we do, when we talk about opera, uh, when the shutdown started, uh, that's when all the conferences suddenly canceled. All my work for Smithsonian canceled because uh, I was going up to I was up to ten tours that year, mostly Eastern European European areas and Europe and and the Adriatic area, whatever. Suddenly I wasn't going anywhere. Nobody else was either. So we started and Zoom, woohoo, Zoom. So we started a thing called the Night at the Opera, and we've done it now. I think we're on our twenty second or twenty third opera, and it, it, we started with Rossini Cinderella, Cenerentola, which is so delightful that you can kind of almost hate everything about stage works and music and you'll be won over you just simply will be it's just gonna it's like a you know a, a butterscotch sunday you really can't you know dive in what can now I are they are these recorded and on your website they, well they're free uh when i have them they're free you just have to register so you can get the password and the link right mm -hmm. and then they stay on the website free for a while and then they move into our active subscription thing called circle of scholars which gives everybody access to all of the workshops we do the series on sprints through history uh we've just finishing where we're in a third of a we have done a series called um, music for winter music for where we start music for spring no music for summer music for fall music for winter we just did which is really amazingly kind of how the variety you come up with and we still have music for spring i do uh, Cyrillic workshops and uh, things on boot camp on authors, uh, Pushkin boot camp, Goethe boot camp, so that you know you know zero, and an hour later you know a lot. That's my theory because I've had to do that in my life. I've had to take on so many. You do this when you become a college professor. Okay, you've got a dissertation. You think you know something. That's not at all what they hand you to teach. And there you are going, oh, I've got to do a history on, um, on um, a, a course on, on jazz. I don't know very much about jazz. I better start studying. How much can I learn? How fast? So I've had a lot of my life where I've really had to learn fast. We all have. We've all had to do quick study. So I try to make these webinars quick studies. So with this opera series, it's really been so lovely. We've gone through, I think it's already 22 major works, and Wagner and Mozart and 20th century works, Britain and and um, um, works on Orfeo, Monteverdi's Orfeo, works that are dealing with classical mythology that were so inspiring to Baroque composers. And you need to know zero. And we did Carousel, for example, if I'm not mistaken. You know, we're doing musicals. So I would mean, love people to come in, especially if you think you're not sure you're going to like this stuff. Our goal is to make sure that you come out with some confidence, because confidence is what holds us back. The lack of confidence it holds us all back yeah i would love do you have like membership packages for schools like if a headmaster does a package and then all his te all the teachers his or her teachers yep. can have access to this because this would be great for teachers to to watch to plan a lesson or to yep. know what to supplement with if they want to bring music in for a certain era of history they're studying yeah we have our hard copy stuff which is still very important to a lot of people but the online stuff, of course, can go globally. It can be accessed at two in the morning across the globe, you know, or when we are two in the morning, somebody else is not two in the morning. So, I mean, we've been able, this was really my husband's vision and I didn't talk a lot about Hank, but you know, Hank has had the vision on so much of this. He started the Circle of Scholars. I, I, I 
have to tell you, I'd have been thinking about what do I do to the pot roast? And has anybody, you know, wa- where's the other sneaker? I mean, that's kind of my head, all right? And Hank's saying, why don't we launch this? And let's do this. And he just came up at something. He's in Germany right now. He came up with something today I'd never even thought of. And I thought, hmm. what? You've got, you're, slow down. But he doesn't slow down. And you need a visionary. You need somebody who pushes the next thing. And I've been blessed with that. And he does the web design and he lays out the formats and all our publications. No way in the world I would, uh, it just wouldn't happen, ladies and gentlemen. It would not happen. <laughs> so the point is, we've. I look at all that we've done and all that he has done. And I, too, am sort of amazed. It's kind of like when you get to be a certain stage in life and a lot of your parents are still too young for this. And you look out, maybe it's a family reunion or somebody's 50th wedding anniversary. And if you're blessed to have this opportunity, you go, wow, you know, wow, where did all these people come from? You know, how did all this happen? You know, and that's how I feel about Professor Carroll, that it started out with this nutty idea of doing one little course and it's really grown. So we'd love to invite everybody and we have trial memberships and we have school packages and we're really incredibly, I think, affordable. People say, oh, very, <laughs> very affordable. Yes. I mean, that was my goal. Like, even if it's paid my webinars, they're $5 at this point, you know, and, and a lot of them are free. And if you're in a circle scholar, they're all free. So, I mean, I, but because I didn't want that to hold people back. Yeah. I, I just want things to be accessible as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I feel like schools that are, that are limited on budgets and they, they don't know where to start for a music program. You have got what they need to get yeah. started. I hope so. I want to yeah. We want to be useful. I was taught that at my daddy's knee and my mother's knee. Depression era parents say it's one of the lessons they taught you is you need to be useful. (laughs) (laughs) That has stuck. Ladies and gentlemen, what you teach your children when they're, you know, they will remember it. Mm. That and straighten up and fly right. You know, I mean, all those things stick. You may not see it when they're little. The songs they sing, it sticks. Well, Trey, why don't you ask her our closing question? And then we're definitely having you back, Carol. <laughs> I'd love to come with you guys. It's been fun. It's a party. Yeah. Absolutely. So one of the things that's important to Adrian and I uh, is, is that we encourage um, teachers to read and parents to read and administrators to read. Um, we think that, um, you know, uh, you know it's, it's, not just, it's not just for the student or the, or the, or the child in the home. Uh, but the parents need to be modeling um, good reading practices. And so we ask our guests to to give us, um, uh, to just reflect a, on a book that made a really big impact on your life. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be something directly related to our conversation about music, but just take us back to a book that you read um, at any point in your life that really just um, sort of was like an earthquake, so to speak, that just really kind of shook you up and and uh and and had an impact or a quote oh right yeah or 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 a quote Um, well you know if i were sitting around the dinner table we might go into titles of books that have really shaking me up in different things discovering pushkin's eugene onegin we can do all kinds of things like that but i will tell you the book that's been my friend throughout my life and i've made it my children's friend and i'm able now to make it my grandchildren's friend and it's a book that i got in 1958 when I was seven from my mother, and you can find them on eBay still sometimes, or you could do a different version of this, called A Thousand Poems for Children. It started being published in the early 40s. Okay. 
and then I would have, you know, I, if we ever get together and do a video thing, I'll bring all my editions. But, and of course, my copy is in tatters. But that book, to this day, is the most, it'd be like having one cookbook in the old days, the Prairie yeah. Cookbook, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and of course, it covers everything from the most extraordinary poetry and the most complicated to all the mother goose, to the, you know, um, the owl and the pussycat and the spider and the fly and all of that, plus, yeah. plus charge of the light brigade. And of course, I didn't know what any of it was. I didn't care what it was. It was there, and there were a thousand of them, which was a big deal back then. And mm. they were there whenever I needed them. Mm. And so that is the most important book I have ever had. And I still find it the most important book I can share. Or it can be a different version, but a collection of poems that are there, that a child can hold and drag around. And I colored the end papers, which you're not supposed to do, but I did. And it's okay. So that's my book. That's my book of all books. I grabbed that when the house was burning down. I grabbed that. Um, that original one. Maybe all the ones I found on eBay too. And I give those out when I can. When I can find them. I, I can give you a favorite quote too that might be good for teachers if we have the minute. Yeah, sure. Go. Yeah, please it's do. Not, it's not Chesterton. It's not C.S. Lewis. It's not even Pushkin. It's not. It's, it's very funny though because it's been an important quote for me. Because I remember when I read it. It, I really encountered it when I was first getting becoming a professor. It goes way back. And I'd been in the Soviet Union studying, but I never had had a chance to read this in English. And it is Rumsky-Korsakoff's My Musical Life. And there's a lot of composers who have written their memoirs, uh, not biography, memoirs, uh, using that same title, My Musical Life. That was a very popular title. And it's just charming. I mean, the guy started out as a merchant marine, you know, Amimsky Korsakov, Scheherazade, all those amazing Russian operas, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous music. At any rate, and he did not have a very formal upbringing in music, which was true of a lot of the Russian composers back then. And he found himself, to his astonishment, hired at the very new still, rather new still, uh, conservatory in St. Petersburg as a professor of composition. And he'd already had quite a few successful comp compositions, but he wasn't quite sure how it had all happened. You see what I mean? So he took this position in kind of youthful arrogance, you know, as one does. Thank heavens one does in those ages. And this is what he wrote. It's actually a credit across two pages. It's short, I promise. At, he traded his naval uniform to be, you know, as professors. I don't know what they would have worn in 1870s into the classroom, but I'm sure it wasn't what we wear, okay? Um <laughs> And here's what he said. Had I ever studied at all, had I possessed a fraction more of knowledge than I actually did, it would have been obvious to me that I could not and should not accept the proffered appointment, that it was foolish and dishonest of me to become a professor. And then he talks about what he did and what he was first expected to teach and the things he did. And about a page and a half later, he said, he says this. I, I'm sorry. He says in my, he talks about how he was able to handle himself and what the challenges were. And then he said, I was aided in this by the fact that at first, none of my pupils could imagine that I knew nothing. Here's the kicker. And by the time they had learned enough to begin to see through me, I had learned something myself. So a good teacher, a good teacher, he, he became the most brilliant teacher of the 19th century, late 19th century. You got to jump in 
probably you shouldn't jump in. You don't know enough. Neither did Rimsky Korsakov. Are you kidding? The greatest orchestrator of the 19th century, one of the greatest of By the time he his students started catching up, of course, they never caught on because he had learned something himself. And to me, this is the essence of the kind of teachers who are working as homeschool parents, homeschool tutors, co-op tutors, classical education uh, pioneers, all those who are working in bigger institutions where you're still giving it your, your heart and soul to try to reach as many children as possible. That's my quote. I love that quote. That is so encouraging to so many teachers, parents, Oh, that's really great because we all are giving our heart. And, 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 and this is the spirit of classical education. You dive in, you be brave, and you love, and you care, and you do your best, and you read a lot. <laughs> right? And, and you fake it where you need to because they're kids. They won't know. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. And yeah. then one yeah. day. Once, once you realize... Um... And, and, and admit that you are not the fount of all knowledge, but that you've been invited to drink from it. Um, you know, that you are not, um, I love John Senior's image uh, of himself as a teacher as a custodian or a janitor that is just holding the door open saying like, guys, you should probably see what's in this room, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that will give a lot of encouragement, um, especially to, um, to our, our homeschool parents that are listening, um, because I know many of them, um, you know, are, are concerned about, um, you know, well, I didn't get a classical education. Well, guess what? Almost all teachers working in formal education did not get a classical education. And I can almost guarantee you, well, I can guarantee you that if they got a, if they got a, a graduate degree in education within the last 100 years exactly <laughs> you know watch out so yeah thank you for sharing that yeah thank you thank you carol this is fun thank you to all of you who have listened through all of this bless you and i hope some of it's helpful and useful as we would say back in my home yes thanks Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven. <laughs>